Okay, time for scripture. Eli's going to come up and he's going to read to us from Revelation 21 and 22. What you're about to hear are the final words of the Bible. Today we're going to end the big enough story in terms of walking through the scriptures themselves. And so I encourage you to give your ear to these words from Revelation. A reading from Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold-measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. The wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. The Twelve gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl. Then the angel showed me the river of life giving water, shining like crystal, flowing, from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river is the tree of life, which produces 12 crops of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. The tree's leaves are for the healing of the nations. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who drinks desires drink freely from the water of life. The one who bears witness to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Eli. Um, hey, I, it's not lost on us that depending on where you're sitting in this room, it's either cold or hot. Uh, so the AC is temperamental in this room. We're working to get that resolved. Hang in there with me. Um, all right. Eli just read us the final words of the Bible. And that's where the story comes to a close. And if you're new, uh, we have spent the last year walking through the idea of a big enough story. What is the great story of Scripture? And, and we broke it into five acts, five parts that tell us the whole story, starting in Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Revelation 22. And we've been walking through that. We'll end the story today. And uh, next week, I'm going to offer some final summarizing, zoom way out, look at the whole movement of Scripture kind of thoughts. And, uh, but today, we're going to walk through these final pictures, these final scenes from the end of Scripture, asking ourselves what it may have to say to us. We've been working these last few weeks through the book of Revelation, and uh, whenever we approach Revelation, I think it's just important to say, and, and we'll continue to remind ourselves, that Revelation has been a historically 
or at least in recent history, wildly misunderstood, wildly misinterpreted book, a, a book that has been wielded as a threat and a weapon far more often than as an instrument of hope. And uh, I believe that we are encountering pictures of great hope, pictures loaded with hope and renewal and restoration. And, uh, and so I just want to say be at peace as we walk through uh, scripture like this. Uh, what Eli just read is charged with imagery, some of which is really confounding, some of which is complex, some of which we don't understand exactly what the intention is. Uh, but I do want to continue to reinforce this conviction that I have that revelation is not a code to crack. It is a collage of images to gaze upon, right? And when we approach it as this cipher that we've got to unlock to understand the end times, inevitably we end up, uh, you know, coercing and, and manipulating the intent of what revelation was. Instead, we have what I think is better uh, thought of as a puzzle box, if you look at the image of a puzzle box and you get really close on any part of that image, you're not going to be able to understand the picture. And, and similarly, if the puzzle pieces are scattered all around, you're not going to understand the picture. But if you step back and the pieces come together, you start to see something as a whole that could not be seen before. And my, my belief is that that's what's happening here. We're beginning to get a glimpse of God's future intention, the telos of all things, the ends God has in mind for his creation when all things are fully realized and fully reconciled and fully restored. And when the creator finally unveils all that has been held back until this final bow, all the treasure that is stored up in heaven, it will finally wed our world, Jesus says, I will make all things new again. And so this morning, I want us to look less at the final words and ideas of Scripture and more at the final images of Scripture, the final pictures. And as we do, remember, we're dealing with something that is loaded with imagery, with metaphor, with imagination. And so we can't, the, the, the object is not to take this literally. The object is to look beneath the literal words to the larger truth at which these images are pointing us toward. What do we make of these images? Look for the deeply embedded truth underneath. Let's go through the final images we see in Scripture. Here's the first one, city. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I'm not going to read this whole verse. You can see it up there on the screen. This is Revelation 21, 1 through 2, and 10 through 18. John begins to get a glimpse of the holy city, this crystal city. It's 1,500 miles long and wide and high. It is a cube, and this is large. Uh, if you begin, some of us might be looking at this going like 1,500 miles, let me begin to map this out, right? Again, the goal here is not to take this literally. This is meant to point us to a larger idea. But even if we do just take the actual mileage that we're talking about here, this is less a city and more of what we might think of as a continent. This is a gigantic piece of property that God is sending down out of heaven into the world. But if we look beneath, why 1,500? What's going on here? Well, John, if you remember, is exiled from the Roman Empire. He's on the island of Patmos, and he's trying to say to the faithful churches that are scattered across Asia Minor that there is another way of being in the world. There is another empire in play in the world. And wouldn't you know it, 1,500 miles is almost exactly the footprint of the Roman Empire at this time, right? And so John is saying there is another empire. There is another kingdom 
there is another way of being. The beast-like power of Rome can be and will be supplanted by the lamb-like way of Jesus. When we keep looking for the kingdom to come, for heaven to come, this new city, this new Jerusalem, it's already coming down out of heaven. And, and so not only is it 1,500 miles long and wide, it's also 1,500 miles high. That's huge. That's huge. And I think the idea here is that heaven is, is stretching down to meet our reality. And, and John uses a present word in the Greek here. It's not that this new heaven and earth will come, it's that it's coming. It's coming. And this was written thousands of years ago, so if it was true then, I have to assume it's true now that heaven is coming. It's happening all around us. The new heavens, the new earth, God's way of being in the world. Remember, heaven is not this other place, it is the place that God's will is done. And God's will is coming into this world. And John sees the city And the idea is this, that the fuse of resurrection that Jesus lit is already sparking our world and will continue to. We see it. We see little glimpses of new creation all around us. We hunger for more. Next, this is a city, and in the city there is no more curse. We read that the the tree's leaves are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. And of course, we remember back to Genesis 3, the first act of the story, where Adam and Eve take from the fruit that they were supposed to tend, and instead they take it for themselves. And when they do that, there is this curse, to use that image, that scripture says happens to the creation, and it starts to lead to an escalation of violence, a spiral of sin and death entering our world. We talked about that at length last week. But now John is starting to see that everything that went wrong at the start is going to be healed and set right in the end. We may even dare to hope that everything that's gone wrong in our story might be healed and set right in the end, in our own lives might be healed and set right in the end. And so John starts seeing this undoing of each aspect of the curse. You know, when sin and death came, the first thing that happens is Adam and Eve realize that they are naked, and what do they feel? They feel shame, right? And they go and they hide. But now John sees that in the new heavens and new earth, the city is perfectly crystal. It's transparent like glass. There is nowhere to hide in the new heavens and earth, but it's okay. You don't have to hide. Shame has been undone. We can be fully seen and still fully loved in the the restoration of all things. When sin and death came, the rivers come around the garden and they act like boundaries to keep people away. But now in the new heavens and earth, the river is flowing from the throne of God through the heart of downtown and Everyone is welcome to come get a drink. When sin and death come, brother turns on brother, Cain and Abel. We talked about how that spans and births this escalating sense of violence and hostility in the world, but a curseless city is marked by deep human reconciliation. There is peace. There is forgiveness. There is healing. A curseless city is marked by deep cultural and racial and ethnic diversity and unity. We see all peoples, tribes, languages living unified beyond any descriptor other than this, that the the Father's name is marked on their foreheads. And as a result, all belong. When sin and death come, the tree holds this forbidden fruit, but now it's holding fruit for the life of the world, right? There is this fascinating observation that Andrew Wilson made about Genesis 3. 
In Genesis 3, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, take and eat. And they eat, and what happens? Their eyes are open and they recognize, you can see uh, from the Septuagint, the Greek there, they recognize they were naked. But then, in Luke 24, Jesus is walking down the road to Emmaus. And he says to these followers who are confused about, we had hoped that the the story would end in healing, and he says to them, just take and eat this. And and what we get is the exact same structure. Their eyes were opened, but what they recognize is not shame. They recognize Jesus, right? Jesus has healed that part of the story. He is in the process of healing that part of the story. And what we begin to see is not how, how flawed and insecure we are, but instead we start to see how big, how good Jesus is. It's a revelation happening. And so could it be that the tree that is in the center of the city is actually the tree of the lamb? It's the tree of life because it's the tree of the lamb. Could it be that it's the cross? What better image might it be, could we have, for something that used to hold the fruit of death and yet somehow has become the fruit of great life, right? And so Jesus and his cross stand in the center of the city. And then gates, Gates, this city that doesn't have a curse anymore. It has a high wall with 12 gates. The 12 gates are made of pearls, and each gate is from a single pearl, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So you have these gates, but they're never shut, ever. Their function is simply not to keep people out. We think of gates, we think of something that is, that is a blockade, something that can be used to make sure that the right things enter and the wrong things stay away. That is simply not the purpose of the gates yeah. in this picture, right? We used to live in this college town in Indiana where there were these beautiful gates called the sample gates, but they were wide open. They didn't stand there to block anybody from coming onto campus. They stood there as a great beckoning. Welcome, you've arrived. This is a beautiful entrance, come. And I think there's something like that going on here. The gates are never shut. And yet, nothing unclean ever enters. Well, how does that work? Because if you open up your front door all night, you know, eventually, (laughs) who knows what enters, right? And yet, nothing unclean ever enters. Well, how is that? I think it's this, and this has become for me one of the guiding images of theology that I use to work through the difficult issues of our day. And and I'm I'm speculating, I'm theorizing here, but, but follow me on this. To pass through the gate, I think we have to encounter Jesus at his essence. Jesus says in John 10, I am the gate. And we also know that Jesus has a certain shape to him, right? Because we read, from the foundations of the world, the lamb was slain, right? The lamb is always cruciform in shape, always cross-shaped in shape. And so, to come through the gates, we have to come to the gate Jesus. He says, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. And we also read that the gates are made from a single pearl, a single pearl, right? Well, we have that kind of long-standing cultural idea of a joke about like, the, you know, there's Peter and then there's the pearly gates, right? This is where this comes from. The gates are pearls. What is a pearl? A pearl is formed when an oyster 
encounters a great irritant and contaminant and undergoes tremendous suffering. And then out of the suffering, something beautiful emerges. This is the picture of the cross. Great contamination and irritation come, and there is a suffering that must be undergone, but something beautiful emerges out of that suffering. It is the pearl of great price. And so Jesus is the beautiful jewel gate that is cross-shaped in nature. And so to come through the gate Jesus, we have to take on the shape of Jesus. You simply can't enter through a passageway if you are not the right shape, right? If I try to take a couch through that door long ways, it's not going to fit. It has to be conformed into the image of the entry that it is trying to get through. So we come to Jesus and we have to take on a cross shape ourselves or we simply will not fit. And here's what I imagine that might look like. We have to come to the gate of Jesus and we have to look in the eye the one who has suffered greatly to make a way for us. And if I come with my selfishness and I encounter the one who suffered greatly that my selfishness may find healing, my selfishness simply can't pass through that gate. It doesn't belong. It's not that the selfish person doesn't belong, it's that their selfishness doesn't belong. It's not that the angry person doesn't belong, it's that the anger doesn't belong. The abusive person's abuse does not belong. But if we come to Jesus, we look Jesus in the eye, we reconcile with the great suffering he has undergone for our behalf, we are transformed in that process. We come to Jesus who is a transforming fire of love, and this is no free pass. This is great transformation because to come to this Jesus, I don't get to just juke around him as I am and get into the city. Instead, I come and I see the great fire that has suffered for me and it purifies and it also purges and destroys parts that are not intended to belong in a healed world, a healed creation. And so I come to Jesus in that way and there are great injustices that have been done in our world. And this is not a free pass. Oh well, that happened, come on in. No, no, we come and we look at the fire of love in Christ and we remember that Jesus said, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And then we see his suffering, this pearl that has emerged, and we have to reconcile with that. We have to be forgiven deeply. We have to be transformed deeply, and it purifies, it cleanses, it burns away the chaff, and if we will walk through a process like that to become more and more shaped into the way of Jesus, we are able to walk through a gate that is always open, and yet nothing unclean is allowed to go. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? So, if that happens, then, we're going through this process of formation. We shouldn't be surprised that the next picture we get is of bridal robes. There is a contrast in the revelation that keeps happening between those who have soiled their clothes and those who have washed their clothes. And those who have washed their clothes, they're going through this process of being reformed, being called into a radically alternative life. In a fallen Babylon culture of darkness, Jesus asks his followers to clothe themselves in a radiant brightness. And he asks them to take the name of the lamb on their forehead, right? We read this here, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, right? We've heard a lot about the mark of the beast. There's a mark of the lamb also. 
And the mark of the lamb is to take on the name and nature and essence of another. It is to say, yes, I identify with the lamb. And those who have his name on their foreheads, they are increasingly being marked by his sort of life, his sort of way. We've said several times that heaven is less an other place and more the place that happens when God's will is done. And so as we go through the course of a life saying yes to God's will, where we would prefer to say yes to our own will, what's happening is heaven's getting in us a little bit more each time. And over the long run, it turns out that we do not get into heaven. Heaven gets into us and it changes us, it transforms us. And so of course the culmination of all that transformation is we become a bride that has become prepared and purified for a wedding supper, for a marriage ceremony. And so of course what John sees next is a city that is descending as a bride. A wedding is happening. It's clothed in dresses of white. And this sets up what I think is the final picture of scripture. There is a juxtaposition that happens in the last three chapters of scripture between two groups of people, and I'm riffing on the theological work of Brad Jerzak here, so, so credit to him. Two groups of people. The bride, who have transformingly encountered the way of Jesus. Everybody else is in a group called the nations. That's like the broad category of those who have not gone through that process. They are perhaps estranged, perhaps opposed, to the way of Jesus. They are part of the rebellious order that has, uh, that has made war against Jesus. And as Revelation draws to its apocalyptic close, the nations who are inspired by the beastly way, the lesser way, make war against the Lamb. And you can read about this in Revelation 20. There's a great war that takes place. It takes place at a place called Armageddon, which is Tel Megiddo. It's an actual geographic place. It's a place that had strategic importance in battle. As a result, it was built up and then destroyed over 20 separate times. It keeps getting built, being built up, it keeps getting destroyed. Keeps building up, keeps getting destroyed. The idea here is that if we align ourselves with the way of Armageddon, the beastly way of Tel Megiddo, it's as if we're trying to build a life and it keeps falling apart. It keeps getting broken down. It keeps getting caught in a constant state of disordered violence. And there at Armageddon, the way of the beast and the nations make war against the lamb, and the lamb is slain, and yet emerges still standing, right? We looked at that a few weeks ago. The lamb is still standing, and the nations then receive fire from heaven, and they are cast into a lake of fire. And that's how Revelation 20 ends. We tend to make that the end of Scripture, Right? The good guys win and go to heaven. The bad guys get cast into a lake of fire. Right? But that's not where the Bible ends. We have a tendency, and we talked about this way back when in Genesis. Remember how we tend to start the story with Genesis 3 and forget about Genesis 1 and 2? We start as if sin gets the first word, but it doesn't. Belovedness gets the first word. We just kind of lop off the first two chapters of the Bible. Well, we do the same thing here. We tend to act like Revelation 20 gets the last word and we lop off the last two chapters of the Bible. But the story does not end when the nations are tossed into a lake of fire. There are two more chapters left in Scripture. And when we get to the next chapter, the nations seem to be back again. I don't know how they get back. 
different scholars have different ways of reading this. I'm, I'm peering into a mist here, right? I'm not saying this is the only right way to think about this. Anybody who tells you that when we're dealing with Revelation is too sure of themselves. <laughs> but, but the nations seem to be back. And this sets up the final picture of the Bible. The nations are standing just outside the city. Eli read it. Outside are the dogs, right? This word of derision for those who are outside or estranged from the way of Jesus. They're, they're sitting just outside the city, which, by the way, whenever you read the word hell in the New Testament, it is the word Gehenna, and Gehenna is an actual physical place that was a trash dump always on fire just outside the city. Now we're getting the same image again. We're just outside the city. The nations sit outside these gates. The gates are never shut. Just inside the city is a river that flows to a tree of life, and the tree bears fruit that is for the healing of the nations. Right? And if the nations will come to, to the open gate and walk through it, be transformed, right? You have to be transformed to walk through it then they will find healing. There still seems to be an, a possibility of hope at this point. What is the picture? As the nations sit just outside and the gates are never shut, just inside, the spirit of Jesus and the bride, that's us, those who have washed our robes, what is our role? To say, come, come. And let anyone who hears come. And let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires drink freely of the gift of life. Come. Come. And so that's the final invitation. is for the bride of Jesus to get in on inviting the nations into their own healing. To come through the gate of Jesus and to drink from the waters of life. Uh, if you go to the next one for me, Josh. The one who bears witness to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. And that's the end of the Bible. So what do we do with that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, this much is clear. You cannot read Revelation and not take seriously that there are realities of judgment that seem very clear in the text. And you cannot read Revelation and not take seriously that there are realities of hope and restoration that are deep in the text. Exactly how that plays out, exactly what the future holds, we're peering into a shadowy mist. But we do know this, we know what our part is. Because the bride's job is to join in the great expectation that when Jesus said, I make all things new, he actually meant it. And to join in the great invitation that therefore, come on, come on. Does your life feel like a lake of fire? Come on, there's water over here. There's water over here. It's for your healing nations. Come join the river of life. We turn the page over and the story is over. Or perhaps the story is just beginning. Let's pray. So Jesus...
May it be that each one of us continues walking in the ordinary realities of our life through the gate of holy love. And that gate is a beautiful invitation and a fiery transformation. And sometimes we don't feel safe. And yet, you, the gate, say, come. Help us to walk through that. And then, increasingly walking through the gate of Jesus, help us to also wave our hands to a fiery world, to a thirsty world, and say, come, come. The end of the story, the final word, we hope and we pray, is life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.